I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. Well, we're a week closer to the 2022 Six Nations and today we'll be taking a look at some of the major squad selections from the past week. England opted to leave George Ford out of their initial 36-man squad, but it looks like he might well be offered a way back by Eddie Jones because Owen Farrell has suffered another injury setback. We'll discuss Ford's return to the setup as well as some of the other major selections made by Jones with The Telegraph's Ben Coles. Scotland have named a strong squad. In fact, it's one of the strongest I can remember uh, for the Six Nations. Uh, they've got a curtain raiser with England, and the 39-man selection includes a number of new faces, some of whom have represented England before. Head coach Greta Townsend said that they are all in contention to play in the opening fixture, and we'll discuss the Scots in detail today with my co-host Rory Lawson. Elsewhere, we'll get Rory's take on some of the other squad headlines from around the Six Nations, We'll be discussing the new deal between Premiership Rugby and ITV and we will round off the final round of pool games in the Champions Cup and discuss the lineups for the quarterfinals too. It's been a strange year in the Champions <laughs> Cup well, and the Challenge Cup as well because the tables, for once, they do lie. They really do. Normally when you come near the top, you expect an easy fix. You don't expect to lose uh, the reigning champions or Bordeaux Begler who are top of the top 14. Anyway, I'm delighted to welcome back alongside me the former Scotland scrum half, Rory Lawson. Hi, Rory. Hi, Brian. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Pool stages, all wrapped up in the knockout stages for the European Champions Cup. Uh, if you want a quick rundown, it's Clement Averne versus Tigers, Bodo Begler against La Rochelle, Connacht versus Leinster, tasty, uh, Exeter Chiefs versus Munster, Montpellier versus Harlequins, Sale versus Bristol, Stade Francais versus Racing 92, and Toulouse versus Ulster. Being a bit of a logistical mess, but now we... We do find out we've got some some tasty games. What do you what do you make of the way the tournament's been handled in general? Bearing in mind, you know, we do have to give them some latitude because it's been another COVID ravaged year. Yeah, absolutely, and I think Omicron just added to it, didn't it, with the with the rapid spread of it. But I think to be able to get to the stage whereby you have a, a last sixteen knockout uh, stage in this in this championship in the competition is is progress and at least you now got you've got home and away fixtures which are which are really interesting i think it's strange for me that you end up with what a couple of uh, a couple of last 16 ties with two french sides yeah. you've got you've got the all irish connet leinster um you've got sale bristol so typically you'd have cross nation yes. matches when it came to the knockout stages and this occasion it's a little bit different but i suppose that might happen uh, when everything comes out in the wash in the final eight yeah, I mean, the, 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 one of the difficulties, and I was writing about this, was even when you look at the final table placings, you know, you see Leicester won by 
you know, one, three and six points respectively in the three games they did play. They didn't play the fourth game. So how do you do that? Leinster whacked two sides. But then again, um, the, the side that they put, you know, nearly 60 points on Bath have conceded 70 points three times this year. Clement Averno, you know, they put, I think it was, they put 89 on were aside. Was it Montpellier? I can't remember. Mon- Montpellier, Montpellier could wasn't. have progressed without winning a game. I know. <laughs> Which is which is astounding, but then it's kind of where we are, isn't it? I think yeah. realistically, you'll be pleased that Leinster obviously came out on the back end of a of a decided loss because of COVID. Yes, but you'll be pleased that we've not lost really any of the big teams no, because true. of that, which yeah. is something that we can be thankful for. Albeit, yeah. you know, that the, the as a result, you've ended up having some teams seeded lower than they may. Yeah. otherwise have been but there was some cracking action at the weekend there are some real individuals and teams on form it will now take the break into the Six Nations and then off the back of the Six Nations we'll get into this last 16 I mean it's always a fool's uh, game to do this so I'm going to let you go first on this <laughs> um, uh, you know as to which sides looked you know the business and which didn't you can't look too far past Leinster when you're talking about looking the business. I just thought they were so ruthless, so efficient, so effective, um, so cohesive in everything that they did. Great bench to bring on as well. Yeah, fantastic. And I just, I, I think, you know, we'll get into talking Six Nations in due course, but I think I actually think the Irish provinces across the board are playing some absolutely sensational rugby. Um, I don't look. I don't. I don't know if, if this is true. But, um, it, it, I mean, if it isn't, I, you know, I hope it isn't. I hope that they've got it. Because I said several years ago, the way for Scotland, Ireland and Wales in particular to gain an advantage on England and France, who are constantly at war with their clubs, is for the coaches, the head coaches, to go to the head coaches of the provincial or regional or club sides and say, right, let's all work together. You'll get better at these things. You're not going to get relegated because you, that's never against you. So let's work together and develop a style of rugby that we think will succeed at both levels. And it seems to me, it, whether it's been done on purpose, I don't know, but that is very much the way it's moving in Ireland, certainly. Well, you say that, but I think, you know, Johan van Graan at Munster does play a very different style to, to Leinster. Andy Friend at Connett plays a really wide, expansive um, style of play there. And then obviously Ulster are you know, also playing some fairly expansive stuff. I think when you have a side of the significance of Leinster in the URC and in Europe with the playmakers in those positions, you look at the halfbacks, the back rowers, you can build a team around the, the front five. You can build a team around that skill set, and then you can slot some of the monster guys in, the Ulster yeah, yeah. guys who are going to get the nod. Um, but undoubtedly, I think what 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 they've been allowed to do is is build that platform through Leinster, who just have such an embarrassment of riches um, coming through the school system, the academy system, and Ireland, Irish rugby as a result is in a really good place yeah. and. They keep all of their players in, in Ireland playing um, their rugby there. Even guys like Simon Zebo leave and desperate to go back because he wants another bit of a taste of of trophies, ultimately. Um, so I think I think they're on to a good thing and they certainly came out really strongly from the pool stages. Anyway, in contrast, no Welsh representation in the knockout phases of the Champions Cup. 11 matches played in the two European tournaments. 11 defeats by Cardiff, Scarlets, Dragons, Ospreys. Uh, now, 
we have to re- we have to revisit this because it doesn't look good. And I, I, I mean, I've been writing about this for 10, 12 years and saying they need to sort the regions out because at some point it will affect the national team. But at the moment, <laughs> the talent seems to be coming through irrespective of this. So maybe, you know, maybe we have to accept that, all right, they don't perform here, but that's not going to stop them elsewhere. I think they've been really fortunate in Wales that the national team have done so well in recent years under Warren Gatland. And um, and I think as a result, it's managed to kind of paper over some cracks there at regional level. Um, Europe, the URC or the Pro 14 in its previous guys, I think it's provided them with a platform to be protected from, be, uh, you know, ultimately the, the national team's successes are all that the people of Wales really care about. Yeah. Um, now, that could be exposed and this could be the year whereby things, you know, properly those cracks start opening. When you look at well, some of the... they've got a lot of the injuries, haven't they? The injuries and, you know, the, the, they're opening to the championship. They've got to go to Dublin, to the Aviva against against Ireland. And if they don't get things right there, they could be on the on the wrong end of something. Then Scotland go down to Cardiff in that second week and they're relying on the crowd and, you know, some, some proper leaders in that squad stepping up. So this could be the season, but it's hugely disappointing for the Welsh regions to be so unsuccessful in Europe. And you can't get away from the injuries that they've, they've been hit by, but you'd argue that if the rule wasn't in place to keep the Welsh internationalists in Wales... Then even worse. <laughs> it would be even worse. They would be there would be players looking all over Europe for further opportunities. Well, England named their squad for the 2022 Six Nations last week, and it just like the autumn series excluded a number of experienced players. However, it looks like Leicester's George Ford is set to return. Why don't we discuss this with Ben Coles, the Telegraph rugby correspondent? Hi, Ben. Hi there, Brian. Uh, interesting. I thought that, that it would turn out this way. I didn't realise that um, Owen Farrell might uh, not be available for the whole of the thi- all of the uh, series. In some ways, does that not make Eddie Jones's task a bit simpler if Farrell's not there? I guess it does in a way because it's been the main selection debate, hasn't it, for the last few weeks or or even months in terms of what England do with this midfield combination and what the best sort of way to go about it is. Um, Eddie Jones back in the autumn said that he really wanted to see Marcus Smith playing alongside Owen Farrell at 10 and 12. And he hasn't really had the opportunity to do that, really, on account of Farrell getting injured with that ankle and and whatever this new injury is that we're still waiting the, the specifics of. Um, I think the current estimate is potentially that he's going to be out for eight weeks, which is the bulk of the Six Nations, obviously. Yeah. Um, if not if not for the whole thing, once the specialist sort of makes a decision on, on the state of his ankle. So it leaves us in a, in a fascinating situation where we, England sort of need to work out who's going to be inside centre and outside centre again, outside potentially Marcus Smith or maybe even George Ford, if, if George Ford is indeed uh, coming back to the squad, which it sounds like he is. Have you heard any um, rumours about the potential uh, lineups in those areas? I think the debate at the moment is whether you try and replicate, if you if you go down the Marcus Smith route, and, and I think it's fair to say that if they deviated from Marcus Smith at this point, given he's done very little wrong in the autumn and actually he's played rather well, it would probably feel like a bit of a backward step and as though they'd be reverting to sort of a previous plan under Eddie Jones. So I think if you're going to keep Marcus Smith at 10, which they should, then you almost want to try and 
give him the best possible setup, sort of compared to what he has at Harlequins and when he does so well. And, and there, as we know, he's got Andreas de Hazen outside him, an inside centre, who's a massive lump of an inside centre, who gets over the gain line and helps bail him out of trouble. And, and it's just a great outlet for him when he needs to get momentum. Now, now, the best way of doing that, I guess, if you're England, is probably Mark Atkinson of Gloucester. Here England have, haven't used that much, but he fits the, the same sort of size model and he sort of has that same power and offloading game. He, he's the most obvious fit at 12, but otherwise, in terms of who they're going to pick, the fact that Manitoulagi isn't, isn't available yet and we're not sure for how long, you could see any number of combinations. You could see Henry Slade move to 12. You could see a combination of Slade and Marchant. You could even see a first cap for, for Luke Northmore, who's been named in the squad, who plays with Smith at Harlequins. So I think there's actually not a lot of clarity at the moment in terms of what we're going to see because the injuries have really disrupted England's plans and, and not having Farrell takes away what Eddie Jones hoped to see with, with Smith and him combined in midfield. I'm interested in your views, just bringing bring it back to Owen Farrell. I've always felt that Owen Farrell is such a prominent and dominant leader within that England squad that they may be left a little bit exposed for leadership. Um, you know, Ultimately, is he a single point failure within that squad? Obviously, Courtney Laws has been discussed as taking over from um, Owen Farrell, but um, I'm interested on your views with regards to uh, who England will look to to lead this team forward and, and whether potentially this could expose an over-reliance um, on Owen Farrell historically. Yeah, I absolutely think it could. I think Farrell's sort of reputation at the moment is... Uh, the reaction to him is fascinating because he seems to either have people in one camp who are massive supporters of him or people who seem to think that he's slowing England down and that he needs to make way. He's the proper Marmite rugby player at the moment. And so... I think maybe this might be a case of over the next few weeks, England will will realise what they're missing without him there because he's such a driver of standards. He's such an impressive leader, as we've seen over the years for Saracens and with England. Even even if people don't think he's necessarily playing his best rugby, he's an, he's an absolutely essential leader. And so, yeah, Courtney Laws is going to be key. Ben Youngs is going to be key. Um, I think they're looking to Tom Curry as sort of the future of captaincy and leadership in that back row role. And while he's still quite a young player in developing. He, he is emerging as one of England's world-class players and I think a lot will be put on him as well to to try and lead this side forward too. But I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot of pressure on, on Courtney Laws in a sense to carry on as he did in the autumn and, and to lead this side well, certainly over the next few weeks while Farrell's away. But anyway, I, I fear for England in this sense. They've got a very difficult away fixture to start with at Murrayfield. They're coming off an autumn series in which they did better than I thought and I think many people thought they would do. And yet, given the uncertainties around 10, 12, and in fact, all over the back line, to be honest, uh, the Curry experiment at eight, the, they, are, they are close to getting something really right or it going not right at all and then setting them back quite a way. And as you know, with England, if it does go wrong, um, the media will descend on them uh, in a way that they don't quite do on other sides and they it has always been the case in the Six Nations, Rory I sure will agree is the mantra is absolute because if you win the first game you can then do things under your own uh, in your own time and whatever if you don't you're under pressure straight away because one more loss and that's it, you're out, you're not going to win and everything is fighting fires so it's such a huge game to start with what's your feeling is, it, is there a confident feeling that you get around the camp? 
Yeah, I mean, I think another. I think there's so much pressure on England just because um, another fifth place finish is, is completely unacceptable, isn't it? Given given the resources they have, given the depth of talent that they have, and they seem to have sort of bounced between either winning the title over the last few years or coming fifth in the Six Nations, which isn't going to be good enough. And there is so much pressure on them as a result of that. Um, the midfield is is an issue. Uh, maybe even the wings are an issue as well because uh, watching Johnny May recently, I'm not sure he's been in his best form for Gloucester and, and Anthony Watson isn't there on the other wings. So there's changes to be made there. Uh, I think Eddie Jones loves sort of have, he loves sort of having a a target in terms of the World Cup and sort of counting down the tournaments until he gets to that point and talking about developing the side over these these next few games. But this is a vital tournament because I think if they come fifth again, I'm not saying that that Jones's job is going to be under pressure with the World Cup so close. But they're going to start losing, the fans are going to start losing faith in their processes and what they're trying to attempt. And I think that's the last thing you can need at the moment, given that the, the Six Nations last season, or last year rather, was so disappointing. It's a classic case of the Six Nations momentum, isn't it? That that opening game up at Murrayfield, because obviously off the back of it, they go to Rome on the, the second round on the Sunday and then, and then welcome Wales to, to Twickenham for that third game. So that opening fixture is so important for Eddie Jones and his squad and building confidence, building momentum. It is for Gregor as well, but, but uh, you know, because let's face it, Scotland have one of the strongest squads I can remember on paper. Um, and yet, uh, again, the, the Six Nations tournament happens so quickly that, you know, they're disproportionately important losses, aren't they? You know, it takes one out of five games. But if it's your first one, it almost feels like one and a half and then you... Staring over the edge, oh, Brian. You don't need to tell me as a Scotsman about um, about momentum in in the Six Nations. For so often in recent years, Scotland have come out of a good autumn and a positive start of the year with players on form and have struggled in that opening game. And as a result, you're you know you're clawing yourself back into the championship. But yeah, I think for I think for Gregor, it's great to start with a home game, and I think. You know, having having the fans back at BT Murrayfield, there'll be an extra edge, an extra confidence. Gregor's recent record against England is is strong, um, and I think it, they have a has picked a squad that is full of players on form, and will go into that game very very respectful of what England can bring to BT Murrayfield, but equally without necessarily potentially the the fear um, that may have run through in in years gone by. Uh, let's just ask Ben uh, one one more question before before we let him go. Um, six new faces in the squad: Orlando Bailey, Alfie Barbary, uh, Ollie Chisholm, Tommy Freeman, Ollie Hassel Collins, and Luke Northmore. Um, how realistic is it we'll see any of these? Do you think? That's a very good point because we've sort of seen Eddie select these these uncut players in previous squads, and they they've spent a lot of time uh, training in camp without seeing a lot of action, haven't they? Um, I know Tommy Freeman was in the squad in November and didn't get seen in game time, so you would sort of hope that he might edge a bit a bit closer. Um, you'd hope that Alfie Barbary might get a go. I think the way that he's been playing for Wasps recently, I know he missed their game against Munster on the weekend, but the power he offers, I know we're meant to have a lot of powerful sort of back row forwards, but he is he is quite special. Um, you would hope to see him involved. Lou Northmore, as I said earlier, given the potential for his centre combination with Marcus Smith, maybe Jones will want to sort of fast track him in just to have that option there. I, the one I really wonder about is Ollie Hassel Collins on the wing, just because 
I'm not sure. Like, like I said, they're much more amazing in the best form. And I just wonder whether England will want something a bit different. And what Hassel Collins does so well, given his size, he's, he's about six foot four, still developing. He's about 23 years old, but he's so good at getting over the game line and so good at giving London Irish sort of go forward in their counterattacks. I just wonder whether England might try and look at him there to see if they can use him to just play that sort of big winger role that they hope to see Joe Cop and Seager do a few months ago, about a year ago, before he got injured. So he, he's maybe certainly one to keep an eye on. I, I'm not sure about about Orlando Bailey, whether he'll get much game time, especially now that Ford is about yeah. to link up with the squad. Uh, sorry, I've got another one before, before you go. That's right. Uh, the uh, Premiership Rugby Final, for the first time this season, is going to be shown live on terrestrial television. Uh, the uh, deal is part of a new deal with ITV. We'll also see... Uh, return to free-to-air weekly highlights, uh, which is good for Dave Flatman. I like Dave. Um, how big a boost to, to rugby in general do you think this is? Yeah, it seems enormous, doesn't it? I actually flicked through the, the Sky TV guide earlier today just to sort of see it see it listed, just to believe it. And yeah, there it is for Sunday, sort of ITV in that primetime slot. I think it's it's building on what seems to be a trend with the BT Sport viewing figures, which seem to be on the rise, actually, over the last season or two, based on what Premiership Rugby have been telling us. And now I think the fact that you're going to be showcasing these games live to a national audience, I think I think is massive. The final especially, yeah. because often you might, you might get the odd, the odd sort of Premiership in-season game and that, that would attract people to a paid subscription service. But actually having the final itself, I mean, if we think back to the final last season that we had between Hargoons and Exeter, which was an absolute, an absolute riot, really, with so many tries and points scored. If you're then getting millions tuning into that, then it's absolutely fantastic. And it comes comes at a time when the sport sort of needs needs more more input and investment and more fans getting interested in the game. I guess the only caveat is you don't want to take spectators away from the grounds because they can watch it on TV. So next season when they're showing seven regular season games and the final, I guess they'll just have to make sure they spread the, the games around the club so that clubs aren't overly affected in terms of attendances. But no, it's, it's a brilliant move and, and it comes comes at a really important time for the game. Ben, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, interesting as always. Cheers, mate. Cheers, thank you. Well, let's just briefly return to the epic opener, which is a Calcutta Cup fixture. Um, you've got both England and France at home. This time round, irrespective of the strength of those two teams, with the team and the squad you've got, is it realistic? Would you accept anything less than the two, the two wins there? I think every time Scotland play a BT Murrayfield now, it's sort of, they, they go into it believing that they they can and they should win. And I think this year this year is going to be special when you've got capacity crowds back in. I know that that Murrayfield has been sold out for months now when it comes to these two fixtures and we've got the clarity that they'll, they'll be going ahead with packed out grounds and it'll be special I think that opening weekend the late kickoff on the Saturday in darkness under the lights yes. at, at Murray Field with you know the fans <laughs> will have a few we've had a, a few, good ex- few days you had a good day on it won't they exactly so um I think it'll be a really, really special atmosphere. Um, and I think Scotland now expects, this the, the depth and quality of squad now, that the fans do expect Scotland to win their home games. And when you look at the way that Scotland's fixtures have fallen for this season, if they can get that win against England in the opener and potentially be going down to, to Cardiff, you know, to, to try and back up their first win in in Wales for 20 plus years with a, with another win um, it would be a big big uh, start for Scotland um, but you know you, 
it's always a tough one to call. I've I've been made to look like a fool on many occasions yeah. going into Six yeah. Nations. So, so just ask this one: what's 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 hap- happened to with with Adam Hastings? Because you know, at one point he was seeming to me to be looked at as a you know as a contender for Finn Russell's place, and now he's not in the squad at the moment. It's a really interesting one. I don't think Adam has been in particularly poor form at Gloucester. No, I don't think he um, has. Right. At all. I think he's he's had some really good games. Um, he's been starting there. Um, and I think I think for me, the challenge that's come is that Finn Russell's nailed on starter. And therefore, Gregor is looking to who he's going to bring off the bench. And I'm surprised that he doesn't have Finn and Adam and... The, another 10 in the squad and as it is it's, it's Blair Kinghorn who's going to be likely to be on the bench to cover 10 to cover wing to cover 15 I guess if I'm looking at it with uh, Blair's ability to play right across the back line he potentially can pick a squad with 6-2 split on the bench yeah. and know that he's got the bases covered in the back so long as he doesn't pick up and that, a that is of a bit of a de rigueur thing at the moment 6-2 isn't it but a lot of people you know, are saying you really do need that bulk all around because if you if you fall down there, it doesn't matter what you have outside. Yeah, and I think also when you look at the the makeup of the other players on in the squad, it, that maybe looks you, you maybe have the opportunity to put Rory Darge on the bench as an out and out open side scavenger um, who wouldn't otherwise get a spot because he's an out and out open side. You could put him on the bench, potentially a back row second row option, and ultimately. Load your your bench up with forwards because you know that against England you're going to have that power in the final twenty coming off the bench. Against France you're going to have real power coming off the bench. In order to stay in the fight and win these games, you need to be in it for eighty. And I think that's maybe what's what's pushed Gregor into this decision. But it's a tough, it's a really tough call for Adam Hastings because he's he's done well in that Scotland jersey in in the past few seasons. Uh, Gregor Townsend, well, he's been in charge now since 2017. He's going to see the side through to the World Cup in 2023 next year. Um, how would you assess his performance? And would you, you know, if if they don't make significant dents in the, I mean, I don't think that his job would be predicated on winning the World Cup because Scotland have not been uh, near to doing that. But but get you know a decent showing in that. Is he the more sort of man? I mean, he's very young still. Uh, to 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 give a, you know to give another uh, another four years to. Greg is an excellent coach. Um, I question at any level of any professional sport the length of time that a single coach can have in can be in in place as the head guy. Obviously, Alex Ferguson is a great example of turning over the first team coach while he managed, and he'd do that regularly. You don't see that done all that much in rugby. Warren Gatlin's probably a, a, a real exception to the rule. Uh, you look at the way the All Blacks rotate coaches in and out. Um, Gregor is an excellent coach, and as you say, he is a young coach. I think he will be measured on the, the Rugby World Cup, and when you look at the pool again, for Scotland, South Africa and Ireland in, <laughs> in that pool, I think getting out the pool is, is a success given that group. Um, and, and particularly based on the experiences of Japan 2019, when Scotland tumbled their way out of, of the Rugby World Cup. Um, I think based on recent history, he had, a, he had a good Six Nations last year. He's had a relatively good uh, autumn, albeit the South Africa game was really disappointing because Scotland 
didn't challenge the world champions and were almost predictably suffocated by them. But I think this is going to be a a championship whereby we'll hopefully find out that that Scotland are continuing to be on this upward curve under Gregor Townsend and that he has depth now in that squad that very, very few Scottish coaches have been able to enjoy for a long time. Slightly briefer on the analysis of Ireland and Wales, and we touched on that a little bit anyway when we were talking about their their their, their provinces and, and regional sized performances in uh, the European Cup and how that might translate. Ireland at the moment, you know, they are just chock full of talent. Um, they are seem to be developing in a way that Andy Farrell wanted them to do. Um, I suppose for them, the way the fixtures fall, you know, I think is reasonable for them. Uh, and I, I would say for, for, for the Farrell shouldn't accept anything less than uh, a title shot. Now, whether he gets the title, you know, or whether he comes second, I would, I would think the way it's fallen for them that he he should be realistically looking for for one or the other. Yeah, I think Andy Farrell's squad. They came off the back of a, a really impressive Autumn Nation series they knocked over the All Blacks again they're brimming with confidence the provinces are flying um, you know they've, they've, they've got to go to Twickenham and do they have to go to Paris as well? Yes they do yes they've got to go to Paris those are two really tough trips for, for Ireland I think France go into this championship marginal favourites over everybody but Ireland you know are an outstanding team um, who it will take they'll take some beating Let's, let's, let's briefly do, uh, recap on Wales. Uh, given the injury situation, the way they're going into this, I no one no one wants to finish mid-table. No one wants to do that. But I would be surprised if they are title contenders, and if they if they do manage to do what they've done several other times when you know people have not rated them either. If they were to get near that, it would be an extraordinary achievement, I think. How many times have we underestimated Wales and written them off going into championships and they've ended up winning them? A lot. Um, But I'm not sure I've seen an injury list like this before. When you take... What's the importance of them, isn't it? It's not just a number. No, it's it's absolutely not just a number. When you look through Alan Wynne-Jones, George North, Halfpenny, Owens, Navidi, Tipperick, Faletau, I mean, those are all British and Irish lines all outstanding leaders, all guys that have been there, done that. They have the the winner's T-shirts. I think it's a huge challenge for them. The one thing on their side, they have three home games. Um, But, you know, if they start with a battering in Dublin, which, you know, many good sides will have gone to Dublin and been on the end of a battering, it could be a a long old championship for Wayne Pivak's side. Yeah, and okay, like the the French, we we, we think we agree that they are favourites. They... Start with the very nice uh, opener of, of Italy at home. They have England uh, as their final game at home if it turns out to be a Grand Slam or a title-winning uh, ending. And uh, you you can't say much about what the sides have done in Europe because they've been COVID-ridden and uh, a lot of them have, have just not been... Well, not even, they're not even been playing. Mm. But when you see what those people who have been playing, the players who have been playing, are doing... And you look at the autumn, they're still immensely powerful throughout the squad, aren't they? And they have not not necessarily interchangeable starting 15s and benches, but they're not far off. You know, whatever six or whatever come off the bench, you can't see much diminution in, 
in the final product, can you? No, they're they're high quality. It's the the depth that Fabian Galtier has, even even with injuries, the confidence, the the brand of rugby that they're playing. Obviously, Dupont pulling the strings, even without Olivon as captain, he just, fell just into that. Just tell me about Dupont, because you're you know your view of him. Uh, he's he's a phenomenon. He is now the the, the scrum half that every uh, ambitious scrum half will want to be like. Uh, I just think he is. The way that he plays the game, both sides of the ball, uh, his skill set, his basic skill set is outstanding for starters, which any scrum have to be spoken about uh, must have. But he's gone beyond the likes of Aaron Smith, who was widely viewed as having the best service in the world. He's, he's, his service isn't as good, but because he has such a threat, he's got a fend, you know, a piston-like fend yes, yes. that can get him away from much bigger men. Um, his his pace off the mark, his support lines, his kicking game is outstanding, um, and he's combative. And I just think he is he has it all, but he's also got this cool head on him that a lot of French nines who haven't had his skill set um, have had. But with the skill set he brings to play, he brings the best out in others. And I just think there, there are a few. I'm short of superlatives that actually sum up how good a player Dupont is. Well, we can deal with Italy um, very quickly, and I'm not being dismissive, but just it's not. We we go through this every year. You can't see them winning a game; only see them damage limitation. It's a shame. Um, I'm still supportive of their uh, case for the Six Nations, but I'm not supportive of them staying in forever. And I am supportive of there being some mechanism uh, whereby, whether it's every two years, three years, four years, or whatever, whether it's home and away against the the, the top of the uh, European second tier, where there is an automatic right for demotion um, and, and and promotion. Yeah, I think I think for Italy, they have a good under twenty system. They are bringing players through rugby in general. The, the numbers have dropped off through COVID, actually, and I saw some terrifying stats the other day. Rugby in general. But I think they're going to—they're continuing to try and reel themselves back in against the other professional outfits. At the end of the day, every every team's getting better, so Italy need to get better twice as quick. And quite how they do that, I'm not sure. The positive: Benetton won the inaugural Rainbow Cup last year. They have some. They are starting to win games in the URC, which is building those experiences. But we all know the step up from domestic rugby into international rugby ruthlessly exposes even the slightest frailties. And I think Italy have a long way to go. OK, before we finish, a few questions. Rugby inside line, ITV Prem deal. Don't want to be greedy, but... Well, they are going on to be greedy. Wouldn't it be great if the semi-finals were thrown in two in order to develop a storyline a bit more? Imagine the repeat of Bristol Quinn's followed by extra quins. Yes, you're right, it would be. But you only get so much for your book and uh, I'm glad the, the deal that's been done has been done because you know at least that is starting somewhere. So yes, you are being greedy um, <laughs> and no, they won't do that. Uh, one for you, Connor. The next steps have to be better coverage of a championship, the scrapping of the Premier Cup for a new trophy with championships in it, strength of English rugby lies in the existence of a pyramid. Oof, I think you'd have a lot of people competing against that. I think the the gap between Premiership and Championship is ever widening. 
Um, I think finance is is a big factor within that, and I don't see that changing. I'm afraid. I think, sadly, um, it's the way that the rugby is going. The Premiership Cup continues to have its place. Um, it's a good opportunity for the the wider squads, but I, I think it would be a you're not. It's not. There's not going to be the giant killing in the of the FA Cup if you put Championship teams in with the Premiership teams. Just a final word on this, and I know it's not popular um, in the grassroots game. I support the grassroots game totally, but on an amateur basis. And the f- problem with the championship is it's a mess. You've got some teams that might be wanting to be pro, some teams that are happy being semi-pro, some teams that are barely semi-pro. Um, and the whole thing, you know, it's not a, consi- a consistent offering. You know, you get t- huge uh, mismatches. Uh, very few games, I think, would stand up to scrutiny. Um, there would be empty grounds, a lot of them, or they'd, they'd go from the few thousand at Bedford to, you know, to a few hundred, uh, and therefore, you know, for a broadcaster, it's just a, it's a non-starter. Broadcasters will not touch it, and you can't force them to do that. So I'm sorry, you know, I think the the strength of the English game should lie, you know, in, in the feeder system, and, and actually sorting out the grassroots level, so we're not paying players who don't deserve to make, earn any money out of it. Uh, final one, uh, Simon Rio and Farrell. Uh, we have experience of undercooked Saris players coming international. Have the lessons been learned? Well, I would just say this. If Owen's got an injury that might keep him out a couple of months, I can see no reason at all to, to, to rush him back or, or even take any sort of gamble to play him in one game. I just, you know, it, it seems pointless to me, completely and utterly pointless. If he's going to miss the other one, let the, actually let the squad have a Farrell-free existence for, for, and see how it goes. Because then we really will see, you know, like Ben Coe said, if we are underestimating what he does, we will see this. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really tr- tricky one. You obviously, it's not just exclusive to um, England either. I think, you know, Sean Maitland's missed out on Scotland selection. Does Has that year in the championship knocked a few of those guys back with regards to sharpness or form? That That's to be questioned. But, um, I, you know, I think when you, when you see an England squad, Farrell obviously injured, when you look at both Vunipola's um, per, perhaps a little bit short of fitness and form, I think I think now, well, Ed, yeah. Ed, Eddie Jones credit to him is has selected on form he's you know he's uh, put the cat amongst the pigeons and certainly got some people talking about selections he's he's a fan of doing that anyway but I think this is going to be a real learning curve a continued learning curve for this England squad without Owen Farrell and I think looking at it from a, a potential opponent's perspective could this could this really take England on to another level, or will it hold them back without Farrell? We'll, we'll wait and see. Time will tell. But when you look at a side's attacking threat and the and the people that might operate in that midfield, that you know, there's a lot to keep your eye on. Well, that's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact with the Telegraph. A big thanks to my co-host Rory Lawson and to my guest Ben Coase for joining me. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can check out all our previous episodes by subscribing to the Full Contact podcast channel, including my recent sit-down with England head coach Eddie Jones. We'll be back next week when we hope to be speaking to one of the members of the England squad, and I'll be joined by the former England centre, Tom May. But until then, it's goodbye.